Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to the guests who have joined us this morning. Glad that you are here. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we turn our attention to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we ask and pray that you would be with us now in these moments, Lord. We confess that no good will come apart from the work of your Holy Spirit through your Word in our lives. And so, God, we ask and pray that you would be at work this morning Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would teach us truth, that you would help us to be faithful and living according to your good design. And above all, God, we pray and ask that you would be honored and glorified this morning. We ask this and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series through the book of Deuteronomy this morning. Last week, we covered Deuteronomy chapter 22 verses 1 through 12. And as I said last week, uh, we would come back to verse 5 this week and cover the important subject of transgenderism. It's an important subject because it's one of the most pernicious and damaging lies ever foisted upon a people. It is destructive to individuals and society, and it's being relentlessly pushed in academia, medicine, politics, media, and business. It's being forced upon us and our children. Uh, 50 years ago, this wasn't even on the radar, and now it's everywhere. I want to say up front that I'll be euphemistic this morning. I'm not going to be going into any gross details. And as we think about the subject of transgenderism and so many other subjects today, a lot of time is spent talking about uh, the problem and getting worked up about the problem. And I think there's a place for that. We need to come to grips with just how bad this issue is, if for no other reason that it moves us to action. But the point is not getting riled up, but responding. So I want to focus our attention today on our response and answering this question, how are we to respond as Christians to transgenderism? So I hope this sermon today will be very practical for us. Now, finally, I'm not going to be able to say everything that needs to be said in one sermon. We will come back to this subject again in the future, and we are even talking as pastors about having a special teaching time for adults on a Sunday school, um, during Sunday school, so that we can cover this in, in more depth. But turn with me now in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. That's our primary text today, although I'll be spending some time in Genesis as well. Now, as I said last week, the context of this passage is upholding your neighbor and the natural order created by God. In other words, we are to live in such a way that we love the people God made and love the order God established in creation. That's the overall theme today. Now, living God's way leads to God's glory, but also our good. And living contrary to God's design leads to misery and destruction. It will not go well with us. And we've seen this theme over and over again through the book of Deuteronomy. Living God's way leads to our good, but living contrary to God's design leads to misery. And what that means is upholding God's created order is one of the ways that we uphold and love our neighbor. So that being said, the message for us today is this, uphold your neighbor and the natural order created by God. Love the people God made and the order that God established in creation. And today, like I said, I want to focus on our response as Christians. 
And we'll see four categories of response today. But before we look at those four responses, we need to take some time and lay a biblical foundation and, and uh, for men and women as God designed it. And we'll start by unpacking our text in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. So look there with me. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. The command is pretty straightforward. A woman should not wear men's clothing, nor a man woman's clothing. But this is not just about clothing. It's not just forbidding cross-dressing. It does that, but it goes deeper than that to this, a central root of God's design. The fundamental aim of this law is to maintain the distinction between the sexes that was established by God when he created them, male and female. God's people are not to sin by rejecting God's created order for men and women. Rather, God's order and the distinction between these sexes should be respected and upheld. It's a sin for a man or a woman to impersonate or attempt to take on the identity of the opposite sex. Such an action is not only unnatural, a a reversal of the nature or natural order that God established, it's also rebellion against the creator God and an abomination to him. The text says, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Now, that's very strong language. God hates when his created order is rejected, upended, and perverted. Now, the ideology of transgenderism, which is the false idea that a man can actually become a woman or a woman become a man, that's an abomination to God. He detests it. Why? Because it destroys his created order and damages his creatures. So on the one hand, this text clearly teaches that we should not confuse or corrupt God's design for male and female. And on the other hand, it implies that we should keep and cherish God's design for male and female. But in order to do that, we've got to know what God's design is. As Christians, the Bible is our standard, it's our authority, and if we're going to respond rightly to transgenderism, we need to start with a biblical understanding of humans as male and female. When God created humanity, he said this, "'Let us make man in our image after our likeness.'" So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 1 26 and 27. Now, there are several points that we need to make in order to establish this foundation. First, God created humanity in his image. Human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation because nothing else was made in his image. That makes us as humans unique with inherent and infinite worth. Moreover, both men and women were made in his image. That means that men and women both have equal dignity, value, worth, personhood, significance. Second, God made humans male and female. The Bible teaches that there are only two genders. Gender is binary. 
There are only two genders, male and female. You're either one or the other, and God calls all of this very good. Genesis 1.31. So regardless of our feelings, we should act in accordance with God's design because it is good. And then we read that God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 1.28. So God's design for humanity is tied to God's mission for humanity. God gave them a joint mission to be fruitful and multiply and have dominion. As Andrew Walker says, we were made to reflect God, to relate to God, and to rule on God's behalf over all of creation. So God wants to fill the earth with people who worship and glorify Him. And God created men and women different, yet complementary, with complementary roles, in order to complete that mission. Now, that doesn't make either one of them better than the other. Men and women are both unique. They're both special in different ways. The differences, though, are more than social constructs. They are wired to our DNA. So men have XY chromosomes and women have XX chromosomes. And this difference in our DNA creates differences in our anatomy and physiology, differences in our reproductive systems, our brains, our body shapes, even our bone structure. These differences are a feature, not a flaw. They're connected to God's purpose for men and women. So, for example, men's broad shoulders, broader shoulders, and greater physical strength are a feature of God's design connected to their role to protect and provide. Women's broader hips and their breasts are a feature of God's design connected to their role in bearing and nurturing children. Only biological women can get pregnant and nurse babies. So what our bodies are designed for is different. Each, though, is fearfully and wonderfully made with unique strengths and capacities as men and women. And that should be celebrated. It is wonderful to be a girl. And it is wonderful to be a boy, just as God made you. Yet God also made men and women complementary, Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.18 through 24. Only the pairing of a man and a woman in a one-flesh union can produce children. Their unique strengths and capacities complement each other in fulfilling the mission to fill the earth and have dominion. So as a married couple, the man and the woman were given distinct roles to accomplish God's purpose in fulfilling this creation mandate. I want to stress that the distinct yet complementary design is essential to God's plan for them. The Bible does not separate gender identity from biological sex because the way God designed our bodies is tied inseparably to the gender roles that God created for us. I'll say that again. The Bible doesn't separate gender identity from biological sex because the way God designed our bodies is tied inseparably to the gender roles that God created for us. God made humans male and female. The two are not identical and they're not interchangeable. I'll note in passing here that Jesus affirms God's good design, saying, 
Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning created them or made them male and female? All of God's design in creation is declared to be very good. Before sin entered the world, man and woman were at peace with God, with each other, and within themselves. Adam and Eve lived in accord with God's design, and it was good and right and best. It was joyful and satisfying. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, Genesis 2.25. Now, since the binary of male and female is God's idea and is good, then it follows that to confuse these realities or to refuse to embrace your identity as male or female displeases God. That's exactly what we see in our text in Deuteronomy. So as Kevin DeYoung explains, this is why the Bible says it's sinful for men to act sexually like a woman or a woman like a man, Leviticus 18, 22, and Romans 1, 26 and 27, and 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. It's sinful for a man to dress like a woman or for a woman to dress like a man, Deuteronomy 22, 5, or to embrace a clear expression of the other gender, 1 Corinthians 11, 14 through 15. We're called to glorify God with our bodies, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. That includes living in accordance with who God created us to be, whether as male or female. Confusing or corrupting God's design is an abomination, but keeping it and cherishing it leads to our good and it pleases God. This is why we should help and care and counsel people who are struggling with gender confusion out of compassion. This is why we want to help them embrace life as God intended, because it's not only right, it is also best. It leads to their greatest joy and their flourishing as human beings. The best way to live is according to God's design, in line with the purpose and the roles that he designed for his creatures. And the last thing we'll say foundationally is that rejecting God as creator leads us to dark places. Denial damages us. When, when people reject the creator, they become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they become fools, Romans 1, 21 and 22. And transgenderism is clear evidence of this. The the false idea that men can actually become women and vice versa is futile and foolish thinking. It it is a lie that's being pushed as truth on children and youth across the nation and around the world. Those pushing this are seeking not only to brainwash a generation, but to force everyone to conform and believe and affirm these lies. It's a denial of of fundamental truth, and it's destructive for individuals and society. So how should we respond? Well, we'll look at these four responses first. How do we proactively train our children? As parents, we have to be purposeful in discipling our children to follow Christ. So how do we disciple them as it relates to this issue of transgenderism? First of all, pray. And this is going to be a common thread in all four responses because we cannot do anything in our own strength. Only God can change hearts and minds. We can plant and water and weed, but only God can give the growth. Amen? 
So pray for your children, as I'm sure that you do. Pray for God's truth to take root in their hearts and minds. Pray for their protection. Pray for them to love and serve Christ wholeheartedly and to follow him steadfastly all of their days. We also need to teach them God's design for male and female. We want to anchor them in the truth of God's word. Now, we just went through the essentials of that. We won't repeat it. But being created male or female, that's good news because it means our gender is not something that we have to construct or a choice that we have to make, but a wonderful reality that we get to live out. Men and women are called to joyfully live out their unique roles that God has given to them. Now, striving to be the opposite of gender or the opposite gender can never result in happiness or flourishing or joy, no matter what it seems to promise. We also need to give them a godly, age-appropriate instruction on God's design for physical intimacy, teaching them this truth that it should be reserved for adults in the context of marriage between one man and one woman, and that anything that deviates from that good design is a sin. Children thrive when there are boundaries, not when there is uncertainty and everything is, quote-unquote, fluid. We also need to teach them to respect their bodies and those of others. Our value does not come from our appearance or how other people see us. We need to teach them that it's wonderful to be made as a girl or made as a boy, and the way that God made them is good, and it's a gift to be celebrated. We also teach them, we need to teach them the holes in gender ideology. We need to prepare them to respond. They're going to be exposed to this at some point. So help your kids learn to think critically about the false claims of gender theory. Of course, again, at an age-appropriate level, you're going to do this differently with little kids than older kids, but nevertheless, this teaching and training begins young, and we continue to do this as they get older. We have to talk through the assumptions and the inconsistencies and the illogical claims that are being made. Logically, if we can choose our gender, then why not our age or our race? If I say I'm 16, does that make it true? If I claim to be Chinese, does that mean I'm Chinese? No, of course not. See, we immediately see that this is false and illogical, and we need to see it with transgenderism too. As the proverb says, vain is the net spread in the sight of any bird. See, when the bird sees the net being spread, they won't fly into it. We need to do that for our kids. We need to show them the traps so they don't get caught by them and and fly into them. Now, someone will accuse me in this sermon of confusing biological sex with gender and argue that people feel like their gender does not correspond to their biological sex. Now, I do not doubt that such people with such feelings exist. The question is whether or not how they feel or think about themselves determines reality. I'll go back to my example. Just because I think or feel that I'm Chinese, does that make that reality? No. God determines reality. Our desires, our thoughts, our feelings, they're often misleading. Thinking and feeling a certain way about ourselves does not make it true. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Our thoughts and feelings, whatever they may be, 
must always be evaluated by the standard of truth, which is the Scripture. We have to test them to see if our thoughts and feelings are right and should be affirmed and acted on, or if they're wrong and should be avoided or altered, changed. We have to test them against objective reality. So, for example, suppose we have an anorexic girl, and every day she stands in front of the mirror and she truly thinks and feels that she is overweight. She feels fat, even if objectively she is a healthy weight. What she's feeling and thinking is a lie. Should we affirm that lie and tell her, oh yeah, you're so fat? Not if we're sane and we care. We don't cheer that person on and encourage her to go get liposuction. That's not how we deal with that. That would be cruel, not kind. But that is essentially what gender ideology does. Oh, you feel like a boy? Here are some drugs, and here's a surgery for you to alter your body. No, the loving thing to do is to work to help correct their false feelings and thinking so that it matches with reality and with what God says is good and right. The point of all of this is that we need to expose the lies and the illogic of gender theory and show the indefensible approach of so-called gender care for our children so they don't fly into that trap. We also need to teach our kids to hold together conviction, courage, and compassion. We've got to teach them that every person should be treated with dignity and kindness and respect. However, that does not mean that we must agree with or affirm their beliefs or their actions. Disagreement is not hatred. As we just saw, it's unloving to affirm people in a lie. Speaking the truth is loving when it's spoken from a heart of compassion. So we need to model and teach for them how to hold together conviction, courage, and compassion. Finally, we need to teach them the gospel again and again and again. They need it themselves and others need it from them. They need to know that there is forgiveness for sin and freedom from sin and hope for the future and peace with God and joy and satisfaction in following Jesus Christ. And all of that flows from the gospel. Amen? You need to equip them to rest in that and to share that good news with the people around them. Now, I know if that feels like a lot, remember that many of these things are things that you're already doing as parents. Remember that this is not about having sitting down and, and, and getting all this in in a single conversation. This is about many conversations over a long period of time. It's about being intentional to find time for family discipleship, family worship. This is a marathon. It's not a sprint. If you haven't been doing any of these things, then the question would just be, what's the next step for you? Where do you need to step into the discipleship of your children? Remember that your teens need equipping on this from you as their parents. They need to know that they can talk with you and that you will listen to them and help them navigate these issues. So our first response is training our kids. But what if our kids are struggling with transgenderism? That's response two. How do we respond if our children are struggling? Well, first, pray. We are powerless in our own strength and wisdom. Amen, somebody. We need the Lord Jesus to work in their lives and in our lives. 
We also seek to maintain heart connection with them without participating in or affirming the ideology. And herein is the challenge. We maximize compassion and understanding while not compromising the truth or adding to their confusion. Speaking the truth in love and grace, giving gentle yet firm resistance. A part of this means that you don't use a different name or preferred pronouns. You are a link to reality for them that they need. This also means not going along with any actions taken towards a transition. Do not parent like King David. As it relates to his son Adonijah, 1 Kings 1.6 says this, His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? There was never a time when David displeased his son by pushing back on any of his actions. Now, there are many stories of detransitioners that are angry at the adults in their life who did not tell them the truth and did not push back. So hold fast and be patient, and God willing, your children will thank you someday. Your kids need guardrails and guidance as well as gentleness and grace. We also need to find a support group, I would encourage you, to maintain this connection with your child and not compromising reality. With the state of the culture, this might be difficult, but you need a solid community around you. And much of that, Lord willing, will be found in a loving, supportive Christian church. Amen? With your brothers and sisters in Christ at church. But it's important to be able to walk this journey with others facing the same struggle, to have that support. I also want to say, don't be intimidated and manipulated with fearful warnings about suicide. The argument motivating this is often put, this is bluntly, but this is essentially the argument. If you don't affirm them, they'll kill themselves. But the research is clear that so-called treatments of medical and surgical transition have not proven to improve the rates of self-harm. They're just as high afterwards. Afterwards, people do not statistically report any greater happiness than beforehand. This is because the issue is deeper than that. So transition is not the solution to this. Part of your approach depends on the age of your child as well. There's solid research that shows that 70 to 90% of cases of gender dysphoria will resolve on their own after puberty. But we also need to be prepared, if necessary, to take big steps to protect our kids to remove them from schools and peer groups and online communities that are encouraging this and and relentlessly pushing these destructive decisions. We've got to be willing to take big steps. Remember that the underlying struggle might not be about gender at all. Teens are struggling with record levels of anxiety, depression, and loneliness and isolation. They're looking for acceptance, and more than anything, they want to belong. Now, that's not new, but the isolation, anxiety, depression, and loneliness is. It's at record levels. We know that much of this is connected to social media use with the advent of social media. The point is is that for many people, identifying as transgender is offering them an escape from anxiety or depression And it's meeting a deep need for acceptance and belonging. Just coming out and saying that they're trans 
brings a flood of positive affirmation. Their friends and people online and social media influencers and school teachers and doctors and almost everyone is immediately affirming and lifting them up as if they're a hero. It's like a river with a strong current pushing them downstream. It's why it's so hard to go back on this decision once they start. Much of this is being driven by friends and social media, and this is why it's led many people to see this in large measure as a social contagion. What we're seeing is not happening naturally, but it's being driven by activists, social media influencers, academia, and other factors. Those other factors are the loneliness and depression and isolation that they're feeling, this need for acceptance that they're looking to meet. Here's the point. It might not really be about gender, but about underlying an underlying problem. This does not mean that they're not struggling with stuff or that they don't need help. Rather, we need to build into their lives and maintain a close relationship with them and address these underlying problems. The Bible gives us hope that God can deliver people from gender dysphoria, just like he can deliver from anorexia, homosexuality, pornography, greed, gossip, or any other kind of idolatry. Amen? Six of the most encouraging words in the Bible are in 1 Corinthians 6.11, and such were some of you. That's who you were, but that's not who you are anymore. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So there's hope in Christ, and we pray for Jesus to deliver and restore our kids. Amen? Well, how do we respond faithfully as a church? Once again, we pray. Pray for those struggling. Pray for their parents. Nothing happens apart from God's gracious work in them. Biblical love, though, also involves telling the truth. So that means as a church, we're not going to use false names, or pronouns. That only adds to the confusion and confirms them in a lie. We also want to be an anchor in reality for them. Detransitioners share how they regret the false compassion of those who just affirm them along the way. For us as Christians, we need to remember that true compassion is grounded in God's good design for human flourishing. The truth is, is that living contrary to that design only leads to deeper distress. It's not loving to be silent or worse, supportive on transition. So we have to understand this ideology. We have to be ready to gently address it. And I want to emphasize that we speak the truth in love with grace and gentleness, without compromise, but with compassion. I can't stress that enough. These folks have been deceived. They are confused. They are struggling. They are hurting. They have this deep unhappiness underlying these things. And what they need is welcome and care and compassion from God's people. You've got to know who you're addressing, who you're speaking with. We don't respond to an activist and a confused youth in the same way. And in church, it's unlikely you're going to be talking to an activist. So temper all your interactions with grace and gentleness. Amen, somebody. Most importantly, we need to be ready to point them to Christ and the gospel. The hope of the gospel has to be central because only Jesus can bring them to freedom and flourishing in accordance with their God-given gender. Of course, we need to recognize that any change might be slow and difficult, so be patient 
and supportive over the long term. Let's not downplay the difficulty for someone who is striving but struggling to live out God's calling. Don't hold out a superficial promise that this is all going to be easily resolved in this life. Complete freedom from these feelings may not come until Jesus makes all things new. However, we don't need to be overly pessimistic either. True freedom and peace may be found in this life through Christ. So be patient and trust in the slow work of God. That's an encouragement for parents as well, which is the last point here. We need to support and encourage parents if they're going through this with their kids. Being the body of Christ means that if one member suffers, all suffer together. 1 Corinthians 12, 26. The Bible calls us to bear one another burdens and to encourage one another. And of course, we as pastors want to support and encourage if you're going through this. And these are the ways as a church that we demonstrate the love of Christ for those that we know are struggling. It's truth and grace, not downplaying either of those, but upholding them both fully, truth and grace. Faithfulness as a church means holding fast to God's truth and holding out God's grace to those who have been deceived or damaged by this ideology. Finally, how do we respond in the public square? First of all, if you want to see the culture change, what should you do? Pray. Pray that God's name would be honored as holy. Pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We also need to stand to protect children and youth. This ideology is destructive. It leads to great misery and regret. There is malpractice and child abuse that is being perpetrated by the medical and psychological communities, not to mention legislators and educators. We should not allow activists to use kids as political pawns, nor should we allow so-called professionals to use them for profit or for this vast social experiment that's taking place. And we're starting to see the fallout of this. People are starting to tell their stories, one detransitioner said this, quote, there is so much depression, self-harm, and drug abuse in the trans community. They're all blank miserable. It's just like this misery fest. I mean, there are obviously the people who put up a face and act like I'm super trans and I'm really happy about it. But even those people, once you talk to them, you see their lives are catastrophes. That's the reality. This ideology is doing so much damage, and we need to stand to protect youth. Related to this is to protect the privacy and safety rights of women and girls. It is reasonable to want privacy from members of the opposite biological sex. And there's a safety concern here as well. Now, saying this immediately makes me labeled transphobic in order to silence me, right, to get us to stop talking about this. But there are many documented cases of abuse. This is not a hypothetical, but a real concern. We need to stand against this ideology in schools. If you can, pull your kid out from public school. If you can't, then you need to make sure that you do not let them participate in the explicit and permissive sexual education that they are being indoctrinated with. 
that material puts images and ideas in their heads that nobody should see, let alone kids. Kids can't process that. They can't understand that. It only spreads confusion. So yeah, protest at school board meetings and and at the ballot box to bring change and consider running for local office. Stand for the rights of parents. Parents know their children better than anyone and they have their best interests at heart, more than any politician, educator, or doctor. The government has no right to usurp the parents' jurisdiction to teach and train their children or their responsibility to care for their kids' health and safety. Sadly, parents are often cast as enemies in this debate. Many activists and educators seek to separate parents from the decisions that their kids are making. Schools are keeping this decision with life-altering and sometimes permanent consequences hidden from parents, even helping them obtain cross-sex hormones without parental consent. This is outrageous. It's wrong. And we need to stand for parental rights. Finally, stand for truth. We're being asked to lie and affirm lies. Language is being used to manipulate people and push this ideology. So, for example, when a medical professional is told to say chest feeding instead of breastfeeding, they're being asked to deny the truth and to lie. When we're told that men can get pregnant, we are being fed a lie. News speak like birthing persons is an attempt to control the language and so control society. Even the term transgender has no correspondence in reality. There is no such thing as a transgender woman. That's just code for a man who's impersonating a woman. What is the point for us? Do not lie. It is a sin. It is wrong. Tell the truth. Do not add to this confusion and delusion. If you're at work and they demand you to use someone's preferred pronouns... Do not do it. It's absolutely a hill worth dying on. It is worth getting fired for. If you will not stand here for God's design, for God's glory, for these people's good, then where will you stand? Don't add to the confusion or the deception, and do not rationalize this as somehow being loving. It is not loving to affirm someone in a sinful deception that God calls an abomination. That is not loving. How can we wrap this up? Deuteronomy 22.5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. There are at least four implications for us in this verse. First, we must uphold God's design by faithfully living out God's role for us as male or female. Second, we must teach and train our children to do the same. Third, we must compassionately help those who are confused in their gender identity and not strengthen them in a lie that subverts God's created order and leads to damage. Doing this with grace and always pointing them to the gospel. Fourth, we must reject and stand against 
this false gender ideology because it's an abomination. Loving God and loving our neighbor demands that we uphold God's created order. This is for God's glory and for our own good, but also for our neighbor's good. This is how we love our neighbor. To uphold the created order is to uphold and love our neighbor. We're to live in such a way that we love the people that God made and love the order that God established in creation. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus, we pray, as we said repeatedly, because no change, no good will come apart from your work in power in us, in our children, in our churches, in our nation. And so we pray and ask for you to move. Lord, we ask and pray that you would help us to live faithfully according to your design, joyfully because it's best. Lord, help us to be faithful in this issue as Christians. Lord, give us this balance of conviction and courage and compassion as we seek to do that. We pray this because we know that it leads to your glory and because it brings good for us and for others. So we ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.